Hello. Welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast with me, Joe Wisby. For this episode, I'm joined by Ryan Walsh to discuss his article on Claudia, the man who sought out John Lennon to ask if his songs were about him. I loved Ryan's book on Van Morrison, uh, and I thought this was one of the best-written Beatle-related articles for years, so I was really keen to get Ryan onto the podcast. Claudio's encounter with John, which most of us first saw in the Imagine film, always fascinated me. Who was this guy? How did he end up that close to John Lennon? Ryan's article answered these questions, and he shares Claudio's story with us today. Ryan Walsh, hello. Welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? I'm well, Joe. Thanks for having me. Absolutely my pleasure. So, as I explained in the intro, we're going to go a little bit off-piste for this episode because uh, you are an author, as we know, but this episode is not about a specific Beatles book. It's about one of my favourite pieces of Beatles writing that I've read for a long time, which is your article on... Uh, we'll start off by calling him Claudio, the the man that appears in the grounds of Tittenhurst Park in, in 1971 and encounters one John Lennon. Uh, now, most of the people listening, including myself, and I'm sure including you, first saw that quite startling piece of few minutes of footage in the 1988 Imagine film. Uh, so the first question is, when did you first see that that film? And did that scene immediately stand out to you? It did. Um, and it had to be, I, I certainly didn't see it, theatrical release 88. I think it must have been mid 90s when I was working at a video store. And also a teacher had made me this wonderful, beautiful Beatles mixtape that really dragged me in beyond you know what you hear on the radio hmm. and so anything Beatle related at that video store was coming home with me at night and eventually I got to imagine and I saw that scene I think it stands out to everyone a lot of the reviews I researched reference it directly but I was also worried because <laughs> I kind of knew what he I recognized something uh, identifiable in that behavior not that extreme but I knew what he meant and what he was kind of feeling how did you get from that experience 20-something years ago to, to writing this article? Well, I would say, oh, there, there was an interesting, weird pattern. I thought about it now and then, you know, uh, when revisiting Beatles stuff or John Lennon stuff. And it never occurred to me to write about it until I'm, in a, I'm also in a band. We put out an album in 2019 called I'm You. And a, a really interesting, great review of that album referenced that scene almost runs like a background program in my mind in some in some dark corner of my brain and so at that point i was like wow that's a beautiful coincidence and hey did they ever figure out who that guy was started googling and you know i, I go into this up front in the article if you googled it about a year year and a half ago there was a certain set of information you'd find and then i thought well i've I've done this kind of thing before with the book. Uh, maybe I could give this a shot and find if anyone knows what happened to Claudio. Because John Lennon's official Facebook page, for instance, as of 2016, was like, does anyone know where Claudio is? So I saw the mystery was still a mystery. So you mentioned in the article that the, the first major response you get is sort of a dream, sort of a, a you know, you lucked out quite early on because you, you come across the brother. So so was that an easy kind of connection to make? Were you surprised when you got a response from him? I was surprised just because it took months. Of, uh, I, you know, um, 
I think I found an email and I found a Facebook and I think I used them both, but I was just getting nothing. And that is not unusual to me. I mean, for Astro Week's book, I would do hundreds of cold calls like that. And, you know, it's really kind of a 50-50 thing. And then the people who do get back to you, there's kind of a couple categories. One, I can't wait to talk about this. B, I do not want to talk about this. And C, who are you and are you legit? And maybe we'll talk about this. <laughs> and so uh, Ernie was probably somewhere near C, but leaning towards A. And he was just very nice and agreed to do a phone interview. And at that time told me he had not spoken to any journalist up until this point, which blew my mind because the internet chatter about Claudio was rich. People were interested who he was and what happened to him. So the other thing, just briefly before we get on to the, the detail of, of Claudio, is there's the scene in, well, not the scene, there's the, the section in on the Dick Cavett show where you this this guy appears in the audience and he, he does bear a, a brief resemblance, I suppose, to the man that, that appears at, at Tinnerhurst. Did you rule him out as being connected quite early on? Was that something that you really kind of looked at? Just for my own personal looking at it, I, I, I personally thought this isn't there. If for, for those who don't know, there was this famous YouTube clip. I say famous, and I mean in, in Beatle nerd circles. <laughs> <laughs> of, of, uh, it's actually just, it's under six months after the, the scene with Claudio in the UK. A few months later, they moved to New York, and they're on the Dick Cavett Show, and there's an audience question. And he asks uh, John Lennon a question, and uh, but his accent and voice is clearly different to me. It's just been a few months. One of them would have gone, "Hey, weren't you in my bushes?" You know. But the the YouTube caption for it was confident, like this is the guy. And then it linked to the original. And so you know the way the internet works. A lot of people thought that is indeed the case. Ernie was able to confirm, you know, that's not my brother. So there was myth one busted. It's obvious that the first thing to say from the conversations that you had from with Ernie uh, was that Claudio wasn't his his name. His his name was Kurt. We'll refer to him from that kind of ongoing. What did you find out from from Ernie or from others about about Kurt's kind of early life? Well, I learned his name was Kurt Claudio, and he grew up in California. And his father was a musician. He was a great student. And that, you know, is a path a lot of people took in the 60s where you get to college, you start experimenting with drugs and psychedelics and grow your hair long. And um, but the early trend in Kurt's life that Ernie kept highlighting was that he was like a seeker. He was he just had questions. What is life about? What does this mean? You know, pre-drugs kind of thing. Um, and by the way, I mean, I, I I'm not a doctor and I don't. I'm not a guy who says, oh, they take drugs and that made them crazy. Like, I don't want to come off like I think it's that simple, but it certainly had a profound effect on him. And he, I learned he, Kurt was dead pretty, pretty early on in the conversation, which is sad. I mean, I had that, uh, I was envisioning, wow, imagine if this guy just somehow didn't know. And the other thing that was pretty immediate was that he was not a Vietnam vet and the John Lennon estate has repeatedly put in print and in film that he was. And they, I guess they had reason to believe, but uh, definitely not. What was it then that took this guy, you know, across the ocean in, in the days when travel was not as easy as it became? It, you know, it clearly was something that was very important to him. 
how did he get to that point in his life where he decided to go across the Atlantic and, and find John Lennon in leafy England? The story Ernie told was that um, at a certain point, Kurt started to feel like the Beatles had embedded messages in their songs, inviting him to come to England. And at that point, he was an equal opportunity Beatle fan where he would, you know, he was trying to meet all of them, essentially. And I think he impersonated a Rolling Stone journalist and got the Tittenhurst address. And then he began to send telegrams to the, the Tittenhurst estate. I'm coming. Should I come look for me? Like he sent audio messages on little reels and they were, uh, they thought, well, this is a crank. He's from America. He's never coming. But uh, Danny Richter, who was John and Yoko's assistant at the time. And also the, uh, the moon watcher ape in 2001, which I'd love that weird connection. Um, he thought, Oh, we're going to see this guy. I, there's something about these notes that seem really intense. And so Ernie said he, there was a, essentially two attempts to get to London. And uh, the second one, he finally got there because he didn't have much. He was scheming all the way. I mean, he was scrapping money together and, and, uh, but eventually he, he showed up. So he gets there and then the, the cameras start rolling as they were around John Yoko this whole time, as we know from the various different films that have come out. I watched the clip again after reading your article and it, it kind of resonated with me even more from uh, having read the, the, the backstory that you provided for us all. There's so much going on there in, in that clip. And the other thing that really came out of your article is we ha- obviously the imagined film, as you say, comes out in 88. And then in 2018, we get the Above the Solely Sky documentary, right. which has a much fuller version of that interaction, sorry. What can we learn from the bits that are in Above Us Only Sky that, that aren't shown in Imagine? Above Us Only Sky extends it by about one minute. Okay. The director said we put every frame we had in of that scene, so we know this is the complete whatever was filmed. So they would tell us. I think that's true. I mean, there's no reason to disbelieve it. But um, there's some interesting things, you know, in the original I'm sure everyone listening to this is either knows it by heart or has rewatched it by now. Kurt is kind of peppering him. And, you know, when he gets to, you know, he's like, boy, you're going to carry that way. Was, you know, and, and John dismissal is like, Paul wrote that one. You know, you'll have to excuse my uh, liver puddly in the accent. Joe. It's fine. It's fine. But then he cites another lyric uh, from dig a pony, I believe. And Yoko kind of, interjects and says i wrote that one and john goes she wrote that one and you could tell i that was so interesting to me because probably in 88 it was controversial to let people know yoko wrote some beetle lyrics right now that's way more acceptable way more interesting to people but the the firm myth that yoko was like the destroyer of the beatles was fully formed in 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 full bloom at that time i think so it made sense they cut that out but it was really interesting they put it back in one thing that always surprised me about the scene is that he actually, John invites him into Tittenhurst and okay, he says, do you want something to eat? He doesn't give him like a three course dinner. It's clearly a very small bread and soup, it looks like. What can we tell about about John, the fact that he invites this guy into his home, essentially? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Well, first of all, now we know from Get Back, that's a full meal. 
tea and bread. Yeah. <laughs> and it's all the, it's all these guys subside, subsisted off, apparently. You know, it's a great question because we we really don't know what would have happened if the cameras weren't there. People do act differently when the cameras are rolling, and that certainly looked good for John. But the reason I don't think it's purely performative is that John, both before this and after this, has this non-camera rolling history of kind of doing that. Like they're in, the Beatles toured Australia and um, a guy scaled the building and got into John's suite. And he said, well, you've come up all this way. I've got to give you some tea and meet the lads. And where almost anyone else, you freak out, you scream, call for your bodyguards. There was something about John. Uh, it's the reason I think people love his art and his music, this raw openness where he's, he's just going to wit. It's not all the time, but it seems to be a lot of time where he's just willing to let people in and see the real him, and he's not afraid to do it. Can we tie in Kurt's adventure to the two other things around this late 60s, early 70s time? You've got the whole Paul is dead situation, and you've got this the connection with the Manson murders and Helter Skelter, both in, in their own way, obviously, particularly the Manson stuff, dark, horrible stuff, you know, a, a world away from Ed Sullivan. If you think in just a few years, you've got this this whole yeah. different trip going on. It's a, it's a real mind blower. Can we find a connection between those two uh, kind of things and, and Kurt's story? I think so. The Beatles, uh, their work was so incredible and they were so famous that it, be- it took on the quality of a, uh, modern day myth. And so you don't know what people are going to do with myth. They misinterpret it. They use it for their own, whatever their angle is. And so, yeah, you see the Manson family start to wildly misinterpret it as signaling a race war, you know, encouraging to murder. And then you see the same thing with Kurt, although it's on a very, very personal level. It's just about him. And then uh, Paul is dead seems to be of the same vein where it's almost like the gamification of Beatles. It's like, can you figure this out? And John, and I, I'll just speak about John because I didn't look up quotes from the others, but he played it both ways. I mean, he said, this is nonsense when people dig in and certainly was sickened by the Manson thing, but also he would play up to it. So like a lot of things in John's life, he was, there's a duality. And uh, like I say in the piece, it's hard to fault them for it. No one had ever experienced anything like this, and they were all under 30. So this interaction happens in the, the summer of 1971, and John Lennon goes on with his life. And you know, only a few months later, of course, comes over to, to start a new life in New York. Uh, if we could maybe look at what happened to Kurt. So he obviously gets on a, a plane home and comes back to the United States. What Do we know how that interaction with John affected him? Was he happy with that? Right. Uh, well, Ernie says he came home and he was angry at John, which is so interesting that, you know, after you've seen it and you see how kind of John does, he treats him really well. He doesn't put up with nonsense, um, but he's kind in his answers, I, I think, and I, pretty generous and fairly honest about the creative process. Although there is that tremendous irony, you know, he's hammering home. I write about me or Yoko and I'm not sending messages to anyone. Kurt leaves and he goes literally that day and records, how do you sleep? Which is like this pointed diss track directly to Paul. It's just 
It's the timing is unbelievable to me. Kurt felt at first that there was something phony about the interaction. And that's the word his brother Ernie used. And that really spent, sent a chill down my spine, of course, because that is the word that uh, Mark David Chapman repeatedly used and you know got from Catcher in the Rye uh, in his excuse for murdering John eventually. So he, he comes home and he's unhappy with that with that interaction. What what kind of life does he have after after his his minutes with John? It's it's I have bits and pieces of the story. Uh, I think the doc, the forthcoming documentary is really going to do a great job fleshing this out. But it it seems to me we know he gets in a car accident and he flips over on the highway and his brother thinks he's this kid's got nine lives. Uh, for a while he's still doing a lot of drugs, I think, and um, uh, thinks he's Jesus for a brief time, but uh, eventually gets, you know, steady jobs. He works on farms and, you know, in exchange for living in barns, he's really, he really embraces the uh, Bohemian lifestyle for sure. And eventually, by all accounts, forgives John, follows his solo career, and, uh, you know, has this incredible story that for all of Kurt's life, no one knew how much of it was true, including his brother. I wonder if he had any idea. Do you think he was, do you think he processed the fact he was being filmed? Uh, sorry. Uh, this was mind blowing to me. Ernie said he never, ever mentioned there was cameras. It was filmed or that there was a documentary being made that might seem unlikely, but then you think about that situation where he's just, he can't believe he's in front of John Lennon. It's all he sees. And for whatever reason, he doesn't remember it. Yeah, he didn't. I don't think Kurt really registered that. So the family had no idea that it was filmed. Did you get a sense from from Ernie or or when did they see Imagine? Was that something that 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 they walked into a theatre to watch or were they made aware of it? Yeah, Ernie recalls that he and his brother, and he doesn't remember who saw it first or if they saw it together, but one of them saw the theatrical release of it and just was completely stunned that here is this story they've been told their whole life about something their brother experienced and it was filmed and it's an important scene in this documentary they were besides themselves it was hard for them because you know that's very near the edge spot you know he's dirty he's he's wild-eyed he seems he seems out of it or out there but yeah i mean they were also grateful i mean their, their brother's uh, deceased, but here he is again. So you, you mentioned it earlier there, the, the Mark David Chapman kind of connection, which you, which you write about in the piece. And you also mentioned a character called Paul Goresh, which most listeners will know it was another, not comparable, obviously, really to, to Chapman, but certainly someone that was around the, the Dakota in that late 70s period. I mean, it's such a troublesome kind of area in, in some respects, but can you see similarities between Kerr and between Chapman and, and Goresh? On a certain level, more Kurt and Chapman, I think, because uh, Goresh seems to be a straight-laced, obsessed fan. We'll, we'll talk about him in a second, but, but Chapman and Kurt, uh, through you know whatever's going on in their mental health, plus drug use, start to so strongly identify with John. They confuse their identities. Am I him? Is he me? And think that, you know, they're on a mission to communicate or do something with him. And so you, I mean, that's why Ernie gasped when I told him that Chapman used the word phony. 
because it reminded him of how Kurt talked. Yeah, it's just a fine line. I, well, I wanted to investigate every case where that we know of that John kind of let someone, a stranger in, because I, I believe that by the time Chapman got so close to him, he had this belief he could just have a normal interaction. And New York helped with that because New York is like that. It allows uh, very, very famous people to live uh, semi-normal existences. And so, yeah, I was just interested in looking at that pattern of John building up the confidence that he was going to be brave and be himself and not bodyguarded and, and protected and raw. You know, the same with his, his music is raw and, and sort of his life was too in that sense. I mean, I'm sure you've seen that clip of John walking through Central Park. Uh, it's about the 24th, 25th of November, 1980, which is used in the woman video and it's used in the Imagine film. And there's these guys that are building uh, something, some kind of construction in Central Park. Yeah. And, he walk, and there's, a, there's, there's a fence between them. And he, he goes over and, and the guy says to him, I, I, I met Joe, I love your Blue Album. You know, he's so thrilled. This is someone that's yeah. not really been seen for five years. Obviously, yeah. in New York, he was more visible than, than elsewhere. That's such a, a powerful... And there's a, another woman, like a, a woman that's in like a very 80s kind of tracksuit that's out running, and she gets him to sign something, and she says, I've been a fan for a long time. And it, you can completely see that connection that he had. Maybe McCartney, but certainly George and Ringo, if you can imagine them walking around New York, that connection would not have been there. Um, uh, McCartney probably more so in in this country, in the UK, I think he felt more comfortable there. But John was a, was such a New Yorker, and, and you're right. I, I wonder if that the experiences that you had with Kerr and maybe with others that we don't know led right. to people like Goresh and, and, and Chapman feel that they could get, get close to him. I don't know what they felt, but I think that's what he kind of took away from these building experiences is that they will be strange and they will be perhaps intense, but I, I, I can handle it and it, I think he. I think he saw value in that. So Goresh, then you were saying. So you think he's a, a separate kind of case, Paul Goresh, to the others? Yeah, Paul Goresh literally just wants a photo. He wants an autograph. He's not. He doesn't seem to think he's John, or you know. But he does. But he's also really deceptive in that he gains. It's not enough for him to stand outside the Dakota. He figures out a way to pretend he's a VCR repair repair person gets into the code of Dakota, gets into their apartment complex. And then by a weird coincidence, their VCR is broken, <laughs> which was really amusing to me. Anyways, John was that first time he got into the place. He was upset because no one had told him the guy was coming, which makes sense because it was a lie. And, but also he had a, I think he had a book or an album that he wanted signed. And at, in that moment, John, didn't want any part of it. And, but eventually they all kept hanging out outside and start to take little walks together. And uh, John tells him, you can't look at me as a beetle, but if you can look at me as a regular person, we can take these little walks. And also he tells him I'm planning on coming out of retirement. And when I do, that's when you can take your photos. And so Paul is the photographer for the cover of uh, watching the wheels which they hired a pro who was standing next to Paul, apparently, but they chose Paul's photo. So it, that just seemed completely unlikely and also bonkers to me. Someone like basically breaks into your house and then is uh, outside stalking you and 
and within a matter of months is kind of your friend and your artistic collaborator. I mean, that is, uh, you don't hear a lot of that in the world of um, music or any kind of fame, really. So we know that, as you say, you found out quite early on that, that Kurt died. But he dies in, interestingly, he dies in, in 1981. So he would have been aware of John's, of John's passing. Um, did you get any central Ernie of how that, that affected him? Or? No, that Ernie had no, I, no recollection of what was Kurt's reaction to, to John's death. That's the only part, part of my article where the forthcoming documentary just lent me a little piece that I didn't have where he's been in touch with a girlfriend of Kurt's at the time. And he was, and she reports he was devastated, played that final album over and over sitting in a chair for days. Yeah. was really upset about it. Mm. And uh, it's about, and he has, and at that point he's got about a year left in his own life. Can you share with us the, the, the details of what you found out about, about how he died? It's pretty unusual. Um, he worked at an auto plant in California and they were starting to downsize and shut down uh, because they were moving a lot of their work overseas and they started to offer buyouts to their employees. And I think the figure is like four grand or something. And you're supposed to use that money to float yourself. Do you find a new job or learn a new trade? And Ernie asks Kurt what he's going to do with his buyout. And he says, I'm either buying a motorcycle or an ultralight aircraft. And he buys an ultralight aircraft. I wasn't too familiar with it. I did a lot of looking into I mean, they seem super dangerous just from the look of them. I would never go in one of those. But to Kurt, uh, it was really appealing. And um, he took it out fairly frequently, apparently. And some bad luck, some bad pilot chip, and possibly a good amount of uh, wine in him. And he had a fatal accident. It was the it was that ultralight aircraft crash. Okay, as you say, it would have been amazing to have found this guy. Um, but there, there is something I suppose that he's unlike many of us. I suppose you know he's forever captured in pristine condition, film quality. Talking to to John Lennon, uh, you know, as you say, it, it certainly wasn't maybe at, the, at his best at that point. But it's it's just an interaction that millions of people have, have shared in and identified with. That's such an important thing, I think. Well, I think, well, he's part of the Beatles myth now, I think, which is just gigantic. And every little part of it, people want to know everything about it. And I think Kurt, in a way, stands in for fans, in a way. That interaction represents some extreme element of something a lot of people felt when they listened to that music. There, I feel like, what are the other famous filmed interactions it's screaming girls chasing after them mostly you know what i mean this is a a different version of that and so i think it does it stands in for a, a lot of what fans feel in a strange way well that's i think that's a really excellent way to to end ryan thanks so much for your for your time uh, and for your work on this article as i said it's such an eye-opening and fascinating read thanks so much thank you for having me